Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. Today we have a contributor joining us, Olivia Howarth, who's going to tell us about the history of this specialty. The earliest record of child-specific medical care dates to ancient India and the Sanskrit text on medicine and surgery, the Susruta Samhita. Although only revisions of revisions survive, as one of the ancient Ayurvedic medical texts, the Susruta Samhita is most often dated to the 6th century BCE. It was divided into different topical sections, one of which was Cuma Britia, which focused on paediatrics. A modern English translation of the Susruta Samhita from 1907 gives a praise of the Cuma Britia as concerning the management of children, dealing with the nursing and healthy bringing up of infants, with purification and bettering of mother's milk, found deficient in any of its characteristic traits and also with cures for diseases peculiar to infant life and due to the use of vitiated mother's milk or to the influences of malignant stars and spirits. Around a century after the Susruta Samhita, in the 5th century BCE, child-specific medical problems appear in the Hippocratic Corpus, which discuss topics such as childhood epilepsy and premature births. Ancient Greek and Roman philosophers and physicians are known to have discussed how illnesses specifically affected children. They also knew that the biological differences in growing children and mature adults meant they needed different medical care. In the 1st century CE, Roman encyclopedist Aulus Cornelius Celsus published De Medicina, which specifically stated, Ex toto non sic pueri ut viri coari debent or, in general, children should not be treated in the same way as adults. Later, in the same century, the Persian philosopher, alchemist and physician, Muhammad ibn Zakira al-Razi, published a monograph on paediatrics titled Diseases in Children. This is generally regarded as the first treatise to be entirely devoted to diseases in children specifically, and is therefore considered by some to be the first to deal with paediatrics as an independent field of medicine. Each of the 24 short chapters describes a different disease and its treatments. 
The importance of al-Razi's work is demonstrated by the fact that, hundreds of years after he lived, his writings were among the earliest medical texts to be printed. It wasn't until the 5th century that the first paediatric texts started to appear in the West. Four books in particular were widely consulted. Published between 1472 and 1491, they were collectively referred to as the Paediatric Incunabula. The first, titled Little Book on Children, Diseases and Treatment, was written by Italian physician Paulus Spargeladis of Flumin. There followed in sequence Bartolomeus Metlinger's Ein Regiment der Jungerkinder, an untitled work by Cornelius Rowlands, and Versehang de Lieb by Heinrich von Lüffenberg. These books brought together much of what was known about children's physiology and pathology, and encompassed many observations including a wide variety of treatments and prognoses. The following century brought two more enduring works, pivotal for being the first of their kind to be written in the vernacular. The first was Der Rosengarten, a manual on midwifery written by Eucharias Rosslin. Rosslin served as physician to the city of Worms in Germany, and while examining and supervising the city's midwives, he found their practice to be careless, leading to high rates of infant mortality. He wrote De Rosengarten as a result, providing for the first time printed illustrations of the birthing chair, the lying in chamber, and the positions of the fetus in utero. An English translation of the text, published in 1540 by Richard Jonas, was the first book of its kind to be printed in English. Whilst it primarily dealt with midwifery, the book also contained sections dealing with the general care of newborn infants, the choice of nurse, and a discussion on different childhood diseases with the remedies appropriate to each. The first book on childhood diseases ever to be written by a British physician was The Book of Children by Thomas Fayer, published in 1545. Like those before him, Fayer spoke on the importance of maternal milk for infants and the necessity of choosing a virtuous wet nurse, but he also listed 40 different maladies affecting young children. Although still borrowing from the knowledge of ancient works, the Book of Children was important as it enabled other physicians to read and learn about the diseases of children in vernacular English. For this reason, Fayer is sometimes called the British Father of Paediatrics. In the 17th and 18th centuries, as more books were disseminated on the appropriate care of children, both physicians and mothers began to understand the specialist need for care. Texts began to reflect on more efficient methods of diagnosis and treatment, but there was still a focus on the treatment of infectious diseases. Fever was attributed to infection for the first time, instead of being thought of as its own entity, and infective syndromes were described in detail. However, treatments at the time were insufficient to combat the widespread childhood afflictions of smallpox, measles, diphtheria, and whooping cough, and child mortality was high. Population historians have estimated that by the mid-1700s, infant mortality in London was around 337 deaths per thousand births, meaning that approximately one in every three children did not make it to their fifth birthday. At the same time, in Sweden, child mortality was recorded by the National Statistics Office as being more than 50%. Swedish physician Nils Rosen von Rosenstein, 
a contemporary of Linnaeus, is one of the key figures who helped improve the life expectancy of children during this period. As well as working on inoculation methods for smallpox, he was known for his gentle and humane treatment of infants in distress. He also wrote articles about his empirical research into children's diseases, which were published in small almanacs by the Royal Academy of Sciences. In 1764, they were published as a book, The Diseases of Children and Their Remedies, which is still considered by many to be the first modern paediatric textbook. For this reason, Rosen von Rosenstein is also credited as the Swedish father of paediatrics. Up until the 19th century, the majority of healthcare administered to children was arguably provided at home by mothers and midwives. However, orphanages, dispensaries and founding hospitals had helped abandon children for centuries and offered medical care in the hopes that they would survive to adulthood. These institutions were the forerunners to purpose-built hospitals that provided services exclusively to infants, children and adolescents. The first official public hospital dedicated to care for children was the Hôpital des Enfants Malades in Maharis, established by the French government in 1802 on the site of a previous orphanage. Opened in the 10th year of the French Republic as a 300-bed hospital, by 1850 there were more than 600 beds. Children aged between 2 and 15 were admitted with a mixture of chronic and acute diseases and as the largest children's hospital in Europe, it soon became a centre for medical investigation and teaching. In 1852, the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children was founded by Dr Charles West in London, and not long after, in 1855, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia became the first children's hospital in the United States. Like the Hôpital de Enfants Malades, both were established to treat exclusively sick children, the founders of these children's hospitals provided examples of good medical care and promoted the study of childhood diseases, development and nutrition, which in turn decreased child mortality rates. They also promoted paediatrics as a medical specialism, and the first medical societies started appearing in the early 20th century, such as the British Paediatrics Association in 1928 and the American Paediatric Society and American Academy of Paediatrics in 1930. As a separate specialism, paediatrics has led to many advances in children's medical care, including the efficient treatment of rickets and scurvy, universal immunization, treatment for chronic childhood diseases, and the establishment of proper nutritional standards. So I'm here today with Dr. Ailsa McKellen, um, who's going to talk to us a little bit about her experiences and her work. So welcome, Ailsa. Thank you, Daisy. So I guess if we start at the beginning, which is, could you just tell me, you know, what your specialty is and and where you work? Yeah, so I'm a consultant paediatric neurologist and I work at the Royal Hospital for Children and Young People in Edinburgh, formerly the Sick Kids, but we have rebranded in our new hospital, which means I work with children who have problems with their neurological system. So I look after children who, for example, have brain tumours and epilepsy and brain infections such as encephalitis, meningitis and so on. 
thank you. So I, I you know, kind of stick, sticking with the basics, I guess. Um, how do you define paediatrics? Not just in terms of your work, but in terms of the specialty generally. What is paediatrics? So paediatrics is caring for children and young people from birth until either 16 or 18 years, depending on where you work and what the, the cutoff, cutoff is. So you look after, you know, in my day, I might look after a, a very small baby that's been born preterm, you know, maybe born two or three months early that has a neurological problem I'm asked about, to teenagers who are on about to embark in um, a transition to adult life um, and all the sort of things that go along with being a teenager need to be considered. Thank you. So I guess your your work doesn't sound simple, but at least the definition of your specialty in comparison to some is it's clear yeah. what it is. Yeah. So is there anything about paediatrics that you think would surprise people or are there any misconceptions or stereotypes around the sort of work that you do, do you think? Um, so I, I guess the stereotype of the cuddly paediatrician um, isn't always true, but um, certainly there, the people I work with in paediatrics genuinely are um, doctors and nurses and the wider multidisciplinary team are people who are good communicators, really enjoy working with families, um, often willing to um, give the ex- extra to help a, a child and their family. Um, and I'm sure that goes across other specialties, but um, that's certainly true of paediatrics. Um, so, yeah, so so, so that, those sort of stereotypes that you might see, there are some aspects of that that are true um, and some that pr- perhaps aren't. Thank you. So as a, as, a, as a non-medical person looking in from the outside, it seems that something that would be particularly challenging is treating very young children or diagnosing very young children. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you go about that when someone isn't able to actually explain to you what they're feeling or experiencing. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, you you learn a lot through play with children and observation. So that very standard um, examination of a patient that you learn when you're a medical student, where you're standing at a specific side of the bed and doing things in a specific order goes completely out the window. However, you do assess all those things, but um, often it's done through play, observation, uh, opportunistic um, you know, if a child's screaming because they're upset about something, you're never going to be able to auscultate the heart or lungs very easily. But if you get them calmed down and playing with something or watching a DVD or playing a, a game on um, the phone, you can get in and, and um, carry on with your examination. So so I think things are done in a, in a different way. And um, I'm not saying that adult clinicians do not interact with the patients, but the way in which paediatricians interact with the patients and their families um, is probably very different. Thank you. So um, following on from what you said about, you know, the, the different types of di- different ways of diagnosing and the, and the different range of patients, this is probably a horrible question, which is, can you talk us through a day in your life, a representative day in your work, or is that actually impossible to do because it's so varied? It is varied, but I can tell you what 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 might happen in my, on on a day. You know, a day in the last week or so. So um, I go into work, um, and you know, I'm quite big on work life balance. So I work a compressed week. So I start early um, and finish a bit late, so I can have a day off with my family um, whilst we're still working full time. And so I'd go in in the morning and one of 
part, part of my job is to read um, electroencephalograms. So that's like the brainwave tests. So I usually sit down with a cup of coffee and look at brainwave tests for an hour in the morning. And it's quite soothing seeing all those brainwaves go in front of you, sets you up for the day. Um, and then I might go to my clinical meeting with the team. So um, I work mainly uh, my main interest is epilepsy, though I'm a paediatric neurologist doing other things in paediatric neurology. But I would sit with the team and would talk about some challenging patients and patients that are needing advice about care, thinking about how we're working in our service, what we can do to improve things and that sort of thing. And then I might go to my outpatient clinic. And so, you know, my first patient might be, um, you know, a, a four-year-old who's got cerebral palsy uh, and epilepsy and then my next patient might be a 15 year old who I'd see on their own without their um, first of all without the parents and talk about how they're getting on and just help help um, have a dialogue that um, they can build on and get confidence in towards adult services and you know they might be asking me is it all right if I have a drink on Saturday night so that's quite a contrast to perhaps my patients before and how does that affect my epilepsy so I'd see a, a whole range of, of outpatients. I might then um, in the afternoon need to go and review some patients. So I might be going to the intensive care unit and um, it may be that there's a, a child who's extremely unwell and having, you know, having a conversation with a family that might be challenging around um, what the um, likely prognosis is for their child who's perhaps had a brain injury or um, a, an infection in the brain or a very prolonged seizure, something like that. Um, and then I might go and see some patients um, in the day case unit, someone who's just come in to have a, an MRI scan, but parents want to have a quick catch up about epilepsy or, um, you know, school issues and so on. Um, do quite a lot of work um, nationally around Scotland through the Scottish Paediatric Epilepsy Network. So um, I might be having a meeting with them to discuss you know, national care pathways, transition planning, um, uh, projects we're doing jointly, audit, th these sort of things. I might also go into theatre. Part of my job is to head up the Scottish Paediatric Epilepsy Surgery Service. So we might have a patient going to theatre and we're going to be taking some recordings directly from the brain to help um, in the planning of a surgical procedure, communicating with um, my neurosurgical colleagues and working with a physiologist. And then at the end of the day, you know, kind of trying to catch up with emails and all that, and then close it down and go home and get on with the rest of my life. Thank you. So uh, I think it's safe to say you're you're fairly busy um, <laughs> from that list. But and, and I guess it's obvious that you, you know, you find your work very interesting and, and stimulating. But I'm interested to know, you know, when you were a medical student or when you were in your early days, what was the impetus to move into paediatrics? You know, of all the specialties you could you could have picked, was there a was there a you know a eureka moment? Was there something that just sort of clicked that sent you down this path? So, uh, so I think when I um, even before I went to um, medical school, I wanted to be a doctor, and I really enjoyed working with children. I was a brownie leader, um, and I always found working with children interesting challenging of course at times but um you know it's a lot of fun I felt it might be a fun part of being in in medicine and and also just thinking about those conditions from you know ten, tiny babies to you know teenagers going to the adult practice and how that affects them and their families and their relationship and their schooling um, and their social life and all that sort of stuff so I always thought that that would be really interesting so when I went to medical school 
I thought that that's what I would do. However, when I was a medical student, I didn't particularly, um, it's not that I didn't enjoy my paediatric placement, but I, it wasn't quite what I imagined it would be. And there was some people, you know, some people who were working there who were a bit frazzled. And I thought, oh, I don't know if this is definitely going to be for me. But I was very inspired by a paediatric neurologist um, who I spent some time on the wards with. And I thought, well, actually, this might be quite interesting. And then um, when I finished my um, undergraduate career, I went into um, what was now the um, foundation year, but it was then the house officer year. And I took house officer posts in which there were paediatrics. So I could decide whether that actually was what I wanted to do as my career. And, and I went into those jobs and I haven't looked back. Thank you. And it's really interesting to me, having talked to people from different specialties, that the thing that comes up, uh, you know, the most often is that there's somebody, somebody inspiring, a mentor, a, a figure who you can see how exciting their work is. And then you think, ah, oh, well, I can go down that path. And I suppose you, you're now that for the next generation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so without breaching any sort of, you know, data protection or, or personal details sort of um, aspect, are there any particularly interesting cases or types of diseases or types of complaint that you've seen in your career that you could talk to us about? So, so I suppose um, thinking about epilepsy, which is my main area of interest. So, that, that, so epilepsy is not one um, condition. It's a, a group of conditions um, where the common theme is that you will have recurrent epileptic seizures. Um, and that can be... Um, you know, can be from cradle to, to grave, of course, but, you know, all th- they're all through the ages of um, patients I, I manage. So uh, if you think about things that I think have been really interesting to me in my career um, in within epilepsy. So there's two things. First is the, um, epilepsy surgery and the development of epilepsy surgery centers uh, that are are properly funded and supported and we've got a center in Scotland for children's epilepsy surgery um, which is based in Edinburgh but we have a networked approach so we get um, clinicians from all over Scotland working together for um, these children thinking about their presentation so if you have um, epilepsy and you've tried to um, anti-epileptic drugs, it's very unlikely you'll become seizure free with a third medication. So if you ha- so that's about a third of children with epilepsy have what we call drug resistant epilepsy. So the seizures are not stopping on the medicines. So if you are in that group um, and you're having ongoing seizures, that obviously has a major impact on your life. You know, um, we try and um, encourage our families to live lives to the full. But obviously there are some sensible precautions one must put in place. So if you are in that group and you have um, um, some investigations and you find, for example, you've got a, a focal cortical dysplasia, which is a little bit of brain that's not made properly, and you can show that that's where the seizures are coming from, and it's a bit of brain that you think you can remove, you can take go and have neurosurgery, have that bit of brain removed and become seizure-free. And that will um, change your life um, hugely in terms of life without seizures. Um, and we know that if you have you know, successful epilepsy surgery, um, your quality of life um, is improved. So so that that's one thing that I think has been is really interesting. I think the other aspect of um, uh, um, epilepsy that has been fascinating over my career as paediatric neurologist. So I've been a consultant for 20 years and trained before that in paediatric neurology 
is the um, discovery of um, new genes associated with epilepsy and how that dictates our treatments so like precision type therapies so if if for example um you know two children two babies that presented with a very severe epileptic encephalopathy so like you know you're a small baby and you have lots of seizures and your brain waves are completely messed messed up as a result of the condition and one of these children has sadly died but the other one has um a genetic um, condition as particular gene which has dictated to me what the right treatments are and he has um it, he he has uh, continued to have uh, a good life with his family and he's making some developmental progress and though he continues to have seizures he's not having a hundred seizures a day which is what he was when I first met him so the so gene gene discovery and thinking about treatments targeted to genetic conditions has been, I think, the most amazing development in my um, career over the last 20 years. And we've now started giving, we're now part of a clinical trial in Edinburgh to give a gene therapy treatment for a specific type of epilepsy called Dravet syndrome. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think these conditions cause severe epilepsy, um, developmental um, problems, behavioural problems, massive impact on quality of life for the child and their family. And, you know, if we're able to give gene therapies that are successful, I think we're going to see some real, really good outcomes for these um, patients in the longer term. Thank you. That's that's really interesting to hear about that um, progression. So connected to that, you know, b- beyond sort of epilepsy and, and neurology, are there big shifts that you've seen in paediatrics in general over the course of your career? You know, what, what are the what are the changes of focus that you have witnessed or changes in treatment or, or diagnosis or anything like that? So I guess um, paediatric services have become um, more, I think, more streamlined. So, uh, you know, paediatric intensive care units um you know we're developing in the 80s and 90s but you know we're very clearly defined now in certain centers um with transport systems to bring people to the right intensive care unit to get the right treatments so i think the sort of specialization of services has been one major development in pediatrics so you know within the hospital i work i work this defined respiratory physicians defined gi physicians etc so that's some specialty um um, organization has become more developed with time which which is which is one I think is a really good development because we can't keep up with everything that's happening even within pediatric neurology we are subspecialized into different areas so you can imagine a general pediatrician couldn't possibly keep up with every area there is a really important person for overall management of patients and also um, the acute pediatric um, presentations to the inpatient service and sort of general pediatric type outpatients. So, so I think that's one development. I think the other thing that's developed in my time is that um, care is much more consultant-led and delivered um, than it previously was. And that's not to say that our trainees aren't doing lots of um, delivery of care to families because they absolutely are. But I think um, uh, that as things have developed there is a lot more um, consultant-led and delivered care within paediatrics. Thank you very much. So I suppose we've done the the past and the present. So I'm going to try for the future next, which is probably the worst of the three to to talk about. But you know, do you have a picture in your head, or do you have any thoughts about where paediatrics is going to go in ten or twenty years' time? You know, what are the 
the new developments or advances that you think we might see? Well, one thing I would re- personally really like to see, and you know, this is personal perspective, but I'd like to see a teenage young adult service. Because at the moment, as I said earlier, you know, you, your time in paediatrics finishes at 16 or 18 years, depending on what the, you know, where, where you work. Um, but that's a very sort of challenging time for um, young people, isn't it? They, you know, they're finishing with paediatric service, you know, that, that maybe that doctor they've known for 13 or 14 years through their chronic condition and they're going into an, an adult service. So we do have transition arrangements in place for for many conditions, though transition services aren't always that well developed. But you, even if you go through a transition to an adult service, then suddenly you're sitting in an adult service um, where, you you know, with the best will in the world, adult services are extremely busy um, and they don't always um, have the, you know, the bandwidth to chase up family, uh, up young adults who are not attending appointments and, and so on. So um, I would really like to see a service that goes maybe, you know, 16 to 25. So you move from the paediatrics, you transition into this teenage young adult service. And then when you're 25, your life tends to be a bit more organised and you are probably better equipped for an adult service. So that's something I'd personally really like to see. And there, there is some some developments around, around diabetes. They've been fairly successful, but that's very unique and other services have not done that. And I think that that would be a really good development. Thank you very much. So I suppose, you know, when we're talking about the future, we're probably also thinking about the next generation of paediatricians. So it may be that people are some people are listening to this podcast who are medical students at university who are thinking about how to specialise. And I wondered if you had any advice for those people, you know, what should they be doing when they're when they're thinking about specialising in paediatrics? And are there any particular skills or attributes that you think makes a good future paediatrician? So um, my the first thing I, I would say is paediatrics is a great career. It is so much it is so much fun. Um, and, and I really mean that. I mean, working with families, working with children, working within the teams of very often very like minded people. So I, I would say it's a it's a really um great career to get into in terms of team spirits and um having, you know, you, you know, you do look after children who are often um, very sick and whilst you might think gosh that would be really sad and indeed it is sad sometimes um, on the whole even in those sad times the, the children themselves um, bring a lot of um, support and laughter to the families and the team looking after them so 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 I would say it's a really really good career um, but from the point of view of um, the the sort of spirit and working with the families um, and I have to say no two days are ever the same in my job and I still see things now that I have never seen before I look up things in books well online now um, you know because of that there is such a variety in in my job that I always see I still see new things on a on a daily basis so um so I think that so think I would think about that, that aspect of the career and think that you know that's a really that's a really good um, place to, you know, place to work. You know, you come into work in the morning, the clown doctors might be um, telling jokes to everyone involving, involving their staff as well. And um, you've got play therapists and you've got people playing, coming around playing the um, guitar and singing along with the kids and stuff. You know, the atmosphere is great. Um, So from that point of view, I would massively recommend it. Um, You need to be prepared to, to work hard. It is, you know, quite demanding the, um, the um, training, though I'm sure that's the same across other specialties as well. 
Um, so so that those are things I think about. In terms of attributes of paediatricians, I think you need to be a very good communicator. Um, I think you need to be able to use lots of different communication styles because you're going to be talking to a range of children of different ages and um, cognitive abilities and their fam- their families who are often very anxious and worried, understandably, because things can be very, very challenging for them. I think you need to feel be a person that's good at working in a team because a lot of what we do in paediatrics is around teamwork. Um, so being a good team player is, is really important. Being able to be empathetic with your patients, I think is massively important. I think it is across all specialties and I don't think it's specific to paediatrics, but um, I think it, you know, it is something that would be, would be really important. So, you know, I think those are, are, are the sort of top three, I would say, but I mean, there are many other attributes that would be useful for a paediatrician. Thank you. So you articulated all that very well. And that was um, some very interesting points. But I now have to ask you, could you talk a little bit more about what a clown doctor is? <laughs> yeah. so, so the clown doctors are dressed as clowns <laughs> and they come along and they're little banjos and they sing along to the kids and they tell jokes and they refer to each other as doctor this and doctor that. And they, they are just a lot of fun to be around. <laughs> I just couldn't let it go without at least finding out. <laughs> That's a new one for me. But um, so, you know, sort of going way back for a moment, but I'm just interested to know if there are any figures or moments from the history of paediatrics that, that you think of or that have inspired you in any way. So I'm not thinking necessarily about in your career, but, you know, is, is there anything from from the the lore and history of paediatrics that is an important moment or an important person? I think something that was important um, was the sort of identification of paediatrics as a as a specific specialty, because back in the day, and I am talking a long time ago now, but back in the day, um, pediatric pedi- children weren't really con- looked after by different styles of doctors everybody's looked after by the same and I think then there was a recognition that actually children have different conditions different needs um, and they need their own specialty so you know that's going back a very long time but I think the establishment of the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health really um, put down a foundation for um, the the paediatrics as a career, as an exam, um, and as a specialty. And, you know, it works well with the other colleges, I'm sure, but it, it is a, our own defined college. And I think that, that that is important and does lots of really important work internationally as well. Thank you. So we're getting on to my my favourite question now, which is, again, kind of thinking about, about your place, the, the place of paediatrics, which is imagine that we have a museum of medicine, and every single specialty has a different object which represents the work that you do, who you are. You know, what tool or object would you pick to be in this museum to represent paediatrics? Oh, blimey. Um, what do you think I should put the clown doctor in there? <laughs> it seems a bit unfair on the clown doctor, but, you know, if, you want, if you'd like. Yeah, I, it's, it's hard to think about something that captures everything in paediatrics because it's the you know it's the whole whole shebang really and you know the cuddly bear isn't you know appropriate for my 16 year old lads <laughs> who are only interested who want to talk about football and stuff so yeah I'm going to put the clown doctor there 
I like that. I like that. No, it, it is a horrible question to ask somebody to take their specialty and put it into one object. But I like the fact that it, it makes people think about um, some of the complexities. But yes, we'll have the client doctor. Um, I spoke to a gastroenterologist and they asked for a jar of poo. All so right. That's very... So it works. <laughs> it all fits. It's a very unusual museum, but it all fits. Um, so we're, we're coming towards the end now, but I have to ask you... Uh, the kind of final question, which is we're talking in May 2022, so coming towards what we hope is the tail end of the COVID pandemic. And I'm interested to know, you know how did the pandemic affect your work and, and the work of your specialty? So, um, I mean, none of us knew how it was going to be back March 2020. And, you know, um, it was a it was quite a scary time, wasn't it? And, uh, and, uh, and I think a lot of fear was what, what went resounded around our specialty. But actually, in some ways, we were very fortunate because um, what happened was, um, you know, we were expecting possibly to be to, you know, to be redeployed to adult service. And we were, you know, very prepared to do that, um, though, you know, I'd have had to go back to a few basics <laughs> I imagine, but, um, uh, you know, but we didn't have to do that because what happened was we realised that certainly within my specialty, paediatric neurology, um, children still came with brain tumours. They still came with epilepsy. Um, so we, our work um, continued to a large degree as normal. So we still had inpatients. We had to cut back a little bit on some of the investigation stuff we were doing as inpatients um, because we were trying to reduce the number of people that required to release staff to help cover um, adult services. Uh, but, we, you know, we, we were able to carry on. And actually, it was really important to carry on because, uh, you know, epilepsy doesn't stop because COVID's turned up. Um, you know, our patients were still having seizures and they needed management and support in the, in the normal way. And so we went to, we did, went quite quickly, well, immediately we went to telephone review and a bit of, you know, video, video, um, review through near me as a as a platform to to do videoing video calls to patients but we realized that um it's quite difficult to communicate with children on these platforms because the parents speak on the phone and even if it's a patient you know well um you know that you don't get the same interaction with them and that that was a that was a quite a worry so um when it was clear that children weren't going to be terribly affected by covid we started getting our patients back face to face so 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 that so work carried on really much as normal for me in general pediatrics because children were not in school and nursery a lot of the infections went away so the, the general pediatricians were probably the quietest they had ever been during covid uh, certainly the, during the lockdowns because people weren't getting out but then when people got out all the infections that we normally would have seen in the hospital perhaps in march april time suddenly they all came with a big bang you know and we had a, the the general pediatric guys were were really busy so so it, it, you know we had a slightly different experience of covid so when you know you know all the adult services were chock full of patients we were quiet but when everything sort of settled down we became very busy then so um so so that was an issue and i mean i think we had a lot of concerns about safeguarding and um children not getting to school and being seen out with their own uh, with their own home and um the you know the the vulnerable children the children for whom safeguarding um is an issue 
um, there was a, you know, a lot of concern about those patients and subsequently found out that they, there have been issues, but obviously that was all behind closed doors for a period as well, which is, was a big concern. I think the one good thing that happened during COVID was the ability to start using the technology to a greater degree, doing a lot more um, online type meetings, saving, and actually we still do a lot of stuff online, even though we can tra- travel freely now. So that's obviously good for the environment. I don't think you can do every single meeting remotely, but there's certainly a lot of meetings who where, you know, you might have driven to Glasgow before for a meeting. You just don't need to do that any longer. So so I think there have been some positives that have come out of COVID um, and the improvement from the health boards in terms of um, giving people kit to be able to work from home and kit that works um, has been really useful as well. Thank you very much. So we've basically come to the end now, but before we stop, I just wanted to ask, is there anything that you haven't been asked that you would like to be asked or do you have any final words or thoughts or anything? Um, I mean, I think the only thing I'd say is if, if, if you are thinking about a career in paediatrics, um, go for it. It's a great career. If you're unsure, come and talk to people who work in paediatrics, spend time with some of the trainees to know what it's like as a trainee, talk to the consultants, because actually you're a consultant for a lot longer than you're a trainee. So, um, you know, it's important to think about what your life might look like in the long term. Um, But I would just massively recommend it as a career. Um, I've had a fabulous time and it continues to interest me. Um, and not you know some days are a bit tough but you know my overall um, impression of my work is very very positive something I look forward to doing and enjoy being at. Fantastic Uh, thank you so much for joining us Elsa that was fascinating. Thank you. For our case study we're going to be looking at the troublesome tale of rickets. Who discovered the disease? Who was affected by it? And what is its ongoing legacy? Rickets is a childhood disease primarily caused by inadequate vitamin D and is characterized by a softening and distortion of the bones, which failed to mineralize properly. Its symptoms include bone pain, muscle weakness and delayed growth and development. In some cases, it can result in skeletal deformities, such as bowed legs and rachitic rosaries. The origin of the word rickets is unclear. It's been suggested that it was named after an apothecary called rickets, who had successfully treated the disease. But another common theory is that it derives from the German word ricken, which translates to twisted. The first clear descriptions of rickets were published in the mid-17th century by the English physicians Daniel Whistler and Francis Glisson. At the time, rickets was occurring to such a great extent that both physicians believed it was a new disease which had only emerged in the previous 20 to 30 years within England. Their observations led to rickets also being referred to as the English disease, or morbomanglorum. Although neither could account for why the disease had appeared, it's likely that the boom in cottage industry, which kept whole families working inside from dawn till dusk, limiting exposure to sunlight, was a contributing factor. Their suggestions about treatment followed popular therapies of the time, including venesection, eating rook or frog's liver, and exposing the abdomen to sunlight as a source of heat. 
An awareness of rickets probably existed years before Whistler and Glisson described the disease, but may have been misdiagnosed as scurvy, which has several similar symptoms. Now, rickets is most commonly associated with children of the Industrial Revolution, particularly 19th century Victorian Britain, during which time it was a disease of urban poverty. Children had little exposure to sunlight due to the smog-enveloped cities in which they lived, and there was a lack of nutrition due to an increase in the dietary role of bread at the expense of dairy. Medical opinion at the time variously blamed heredity, dirty skin, impure air and the northern climate. However, whilst the number of reported paleopathological cases of rickets increased significantly from the 17th to the 19th centuries, Skeletal changes indicative of childhood rickets have also been found in the archaeological records of 4th century France, 16th century Italy, Roman Dorset and medieval North Yorkshire. It was not only the poor who were affected, even those belonging to a high social class who we might expect to be well nourished had rickets. Don Filippino, a member of the Medici family, one of the most powerful families during the Italian Renaissance, is thought to have been affected by the disease. Osteoarchaeologists, examining his skeleton, identified a number of pathological lesions indicative of rickets. The occurrence of the disease in someone of high standing at this time can be explained by the Renaissance custom of prolonged breastfeeding, with children not typically weaned until age two. Maternal milk was supplemented with paps made of soft bread and apples, but neither would have had sufficient vitamin D. 16th century thinking also dictated that children were heavily swaddled, and frail children were often confined indoors, which meant Don Filipino would have had far less exposure to sunlight than his less wealthy peers. Back in Britain, by the 1920s, research has shown that sunlight and cod liver oil could prevent or cure rickets. Vitamin-rich diet and improved environment was a winning combination. Following World War I, there were national schemes of vitamin D supplementation, foods were fortified with vitamins, and free milk was introduced for children in approved daycare. The sunshine movement prevailed, and although rickets was probably not the primary diagnosis of children admitted to sunshine hospitals, the exposure to sunlight promoted the healing of rickets in many patients. Sadly, there are still instances of rickets occurring in the UK, and it disproportionately affects disadvantaged communities. However, continued efforts to improve awareness about the importance of nutrition and outdoor activity remain a mainstay of paediatrics. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage. And we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.